Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome to our show Brianna Holt. Brianna Holt is an author, a screenwriter, a reporter. Her writing has been published in the New York Times, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, GQ, The Atlantic, and many other publications as well. She has a new book titled In Our Shoes on being a black woman in not-so-quote post-racial, end quote, America. Brianna Holt, thank you so much for being with us. I'm really struck by the fact that uh, we are here in the studio. Uh, Buzz and I had to put our old white guys, and you identify in your book and reveal early on you are a young black woman. So we're just going to do our best here, okay? You'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll try. We'll try. Uh, I, I'm actually no I, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, actually that aspect of this conversation uh, in this way. Every writer writes for themselves, first and foremost. Something inside says, i got to write this. But I am wondering, your book, In Our Shoes, on being a young black woman in not-so-post-racial America, who do you have as the intended audience? Yeah, so um, first I want to say <laughs> I'm really glad to be here today. Um, I have... Two different intended audience. So first, it's for black women. I look at this as like a love letter to young black women um, for them to be able to have a book that they resonate with and that they can pass along to other people so they do not have to do the work themselves in terms of educating people. Um, we saw a lot during summer 2020 that black women, black people got really burned out by having to educate their colleagues, their peers, their friends. Um and their counterparts about race. And so to be able to have a book that really explains their situation and dives into the issues that they're dealing with really takes the onus, the work off of them and the pressure off of them. Um, the other group that this book is intended for is everyone else that is above black women on the social hierarchy, because those are the people that can help change the conditions for black women. So that is white women, white men, black men, um, non-black people, um, even black women of older generations, so that they can understand the obstacles that their younger uh, generations are facing today, dealing with today. So much in your book I want to ask you about. I'd like to ask you, it's just not a central focus, but it is something you talk about quite a bit, and it has to do with a conversation we were having on this show yesterday with Lisa Green, who is a professor at UMass Amherst, which is down right down the road here. Uh, she is a professor of linguistics and the founder and director of the Center for the Study of African American Language at UMass Amherst. And we were talking quite a bit about ebonics, not a word or term actually that she uses. And you talk about black language um, quite a bit in your book, In Our Shoes. And you say this, it is, quote, it's widely known that African-American vernacular, the use of black slang and ebonics are frowned upon, so much so that black people often have learned to code switch in order to receive opportunities in fair treatment or advance in their careers. Uh, code switching is something you talk about quite a bit. What does it mean? How does it work? Yeah, so code switching is pretty much just the ways in which, like, a member of an underrepresented group adjust their language, but it's not always tied to language. It could be behavior or appearance um, to fit into the dominant culture. And so you see this mostly occur in predominantly white spaces um, where a person is in the underrepresented group, and they are doing this to 
to fit in, to climb up the corporate ladder, um, to be to be valued, to be considered the same at the same level, to be respected. Um, and what a lot of research has found is that code switching doesn't actually have a lot of benefits for the underrepresented group and doesn't really always work. It more so has benefits for the dominant group. It makes the dominant group feel comfortable um, when they have to deal with someone or be in a space with someone who um, is of the underrepresented group, who is not like them. But it doesn't necessarily result in climbing up the corporate ladder or being respected. It doesn't make microaggressions go away, go away. doesn't really always result in a change of conditions. So the results of code switching are for the black person who is involved with this or the young black woman who is engaged in this, the benefits are negligible? Yeah, so your so the belief is and what we've been taught and to believe and and the people of all races of underrepresented groups feel like um, code switching can benefit them. And so that is something that we've been taught and people still do it whether consciously or unconsciously and it does help in some situations. But ultimately, if you look at um, employment rates, if you look at um, what, how much money black women make in comparison to other women and other men, it's, it shows that even though people are code switching in the workplace, et cetera, they aren't still being represented in these other areas. It isn't leading to what we are hoping it will lead to. When I talk about like climbing up the corporate ladder, getting a, a raise or a promotion, um, receiving respect, it, 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 the, what it results in is very minute in comparison to what we would hope to like what we would believe um, that it would create. Another aspect of fair treatment, both in the corporate world and the non-corporate world and in educational situations and, well, in every aspect of life that you write about in your book, In Our Shoes, uh, is colorism. And this was something that I had not thought a lot about, and I really appreciate it. I learned a lot by reading your description, colorism. And you say something really interesting about light-skinned African-American people and how they are treated uh, compared to darker-skinned African-Americans. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that, because some of the data you revealed is quite extraordinary, and your own experience is really moving. So talk to us about that for a moment, if you would, please. Yeah, I think of colorism as racism's little sister, um, and colorism is present across all different races. You see it not only within the black race, but within Asian American communities, um, within Indian communities, et cetera. But with, with colorism in the black race, you see that the stats that I include, um, it, it can increase, it can result in um, increased prison sentences and jail um, sentences for black people. It changes the way that black people are treated um, within education. Um, dark skinned kids are more likely to be disciplined, um, be sent to detention or AEP alternative school than light skinned kids. Um, some of the stats even showed that when it comes to um, different areas like within the workplace that light skinned black people and white people, the numbers were, weren't too far off that it wasn't even worth like going into the details, which was very shocking and alarming to me um, to just see that black people, while we can be of the same race, can still be having very completely different experiences. 
Um, dark skinned black men are more likely to experience police brutality than light skinned um, black men, et cetera. And so even in my own situation that I read about in my book, I was more so experiencing bullying um, for being dark skinned, for having darker skin. Um, I never thought when I was a kid until really doing this research of the different ways um, that maybe being dark skinned also played into um, some of the situations that I was thrown into where I write about um, that I was, it was assumed that I was stealing from the mall or it was assumed that I was someone who was in a fight when I was the person breaking it up. I never thought of like, if I had been light skinned, would this have been a different situation? In your chapter, in your, uh, in your book, again, the title is In Our Shoes and the author is Brianna Holt. You have a chapter titled, Why Are You So Dark? And I was really moved by it. Uh, it also made me reflect on uh, Serena and Venus Williams, who are quite dark-skinned uh, superstars. And I'm wondering if they're the exception to the rule, or what do you make of their popularity? Yeah, so I would say they definitely are not an exception to the rule. Um, they are popular because they are great tennis players. And despite being great tennis players, and despite... Um, yeah, excelling at their craft. Serena Williams is considered by a lot of people the greatest tennis player in the world. They still receive a lot of racism. Um, they have both been very um, blatant about this, have talked about it in the media. Um, Serena Williams even has had um, experiences where there have been calls against her that people have felt were unfair. She has talked about hearing the N-word yelled at her in the stands while she is playing um, so I think because she is performing and she is excelling in her performance, that ties into the popularity. But at the end of the day, she still is a black woman. She still, or they both are still black women and dark skinned black women and still experience, um, the racism that comes with that. Another aspect of racism that you write about in your book, In, in Our Shoes, is, uh, adultification. And I was moved, uh, by your description about and really, really uh, uh, challenged by your description of adultification and how this description of strong black women is actually used to hurt young black women. Could you explain that to us, please? Yeah. Um, so adultification or adultification bias is just this idea that black children Black girls um, are viewed as older than they are, and systemic racism has really forced like black children into social, emotional, and physical adult roles before they are adults, which also contributes to adultification. Um, but really, it's it's dehumanization. It robs black children of the very essence of what makes childhood distinct from all other um, areas of our life. And so, I think a lot of how um, adultification results in, again, the harm, um, being treated differently by police, more likely to experience police brutality, seen as a threat. Um, we think of the instances in the past where there have been all of these um, Black girls and Black boys who have experienced police, police brutality, who have been unarmed, and how people have been like, wow, they have been treated like an adult. Why were these police threatened by them? Why was somebody who was armed feel so threatened by a little black boy 
who is wearing a hoodie and has candy in his pocket, um, stuff like that. And so that all ties to this adultification, this idea that not only are black children, black girls older than they are, but um, more powerful than they are, looking at them as superhumans, looking at them as a physical threat and kind of just letting it go over your head that this is a this is a girl, this is a kid, this is someone who is smaller than me, this is someone who most likely cannot harm me. Brianna Holt, this is Buzz Eisenberg. I'm 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 looking at uh Bill's well thumbed uh copy of your uh book, which is in our shoes on being a young black woman in a not so post racial America. Uh I have by way of disclosure I haven't looked at the book. Uh, but I'm looking at a commentary about the book. It's called A History, and it's also called A Call to Action. I'm wondering when 23 states either have completely banned critical race theory or in the process there's percolating some laws and regulations uh, in a total of 23 states, um, we're looking at this as a history and a call of action, a call to action. What kind of action are you calling people to? What should we be doing? Mm-hmm. I, so when I speak of action, I'm, I'm speaking more so to starting with reflecting. I think people, non-black people, um, black men, everyone who is not a young black woman can self-reflect and really ask themselves, what is my relationship to black women? Um, whether it's just that you have, you know, three black women in your life, whether they're just colleagues, what would the black women who are around you, who are in proximity to you, say about you and the way that you are using your privilege to create better conditions for them. And so through that, then starting from there and then seeing what ways people can act, whether that is just unlearning unlearning biases. I think that is where a lot of people have to start. I hope what this book will do is really just cause people to become aware of the biases that are often unconscious. A lot of us have unconscious biases and we don't think of them or aren't even aware of them until they are put in front of us, until someone makes us aware of them, until until someone lays them out, until someone lays out these stats and then start realizing and dismantling the ways that we are contributing to these systems um, that are creating bleak experiences for black women. So, Brianna Holt, <clears throat> I'd like to conclude by asking you something that uh, I have been reflecting on since I saw it on the cover of your book. It's the subtitle, On Being a Young Black Woman and Not-So-Quote Post-Racial, End Quote, America. What do you mean by post-racial, and how did we come to this term and seem to have some com- common understanding about it, although after I've read your book... I think we don't really at all have an understanding or a common agreement about what post-racial means. Your thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people thought, uh, think of, of America as a post-racial society once Barack Obama became president. I think that was, it is a huge triumph, a huge you know, accomplishment, especially for the black community to have the first black president. Um, and then other things came after that. Now we have a black VP. When I'm speaking specifically of black women, um, we, the greatest tennis player in the world is a black woman. The greatest gymnast is a black woman. Um, the biggest pop star, Beyonce, is a black woman, et cetera. Um, a black woman just read you know, a poem at the inauguration. So there's so many... Um, first black women two triumphs and so many um, black women wins 
that from the outside looking in, it, it quite literally looks like black women are thriving. But then when we start looking into the average black woman with the average, not a celebrity, not a public figure, not a black woman of high social status, what they are dealing with, we are still the most neglected group. We are still at the bottom. We're at the bottom of, of employment. We're at the bottom of pay. We are at the bottom of situations tied to health care. Black women are still four to five times more likely to die during childbirth than, white, than that of white women. Um, black women are more likely to receive longer prison sentences. Black women often go are one of the highest groups of missing girls and women, receive the least amount of social media coverage when they are missing, um, and only make up 13% of the population. There's just so many things that it shows that, okay, despite this, what it looks like from the outside in, that we are living in this post-racial society, um, or that Black women are thriving and excelling and moving forward, it's, it's just in terms of entertainment, mostly. Um, it's not in terms of our conditions, the conditions that we live in in this world. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Brianna Holt. Her new book is In Our Shoes on Being a Young Black Woman in Not-So-Post-Racial America, available at your local independent bookstore. A really important read. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your time, and we really appreciate your book, Brianna Holt. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to be talking about racism and anti-Semitism, blatant racism, blatant anti-Semitism in the Belchertown schools. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance, local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586 1000. 
Have you ever gone swimming with a polar bear, scuba dived with crocodiles? Amos Nahom has, and his nature photography has made him the BBC's Wildlife Photographer of the Year twice. Now he's coming to Northampton's Academy of Music for an Earth Day show Saturday, April 22nd. He'll share his breathtaking images, the thrilling stories behind the photos, and his message of harmony with the natural world. Visit aomtheater.com to get your tickets today for Amos Nahom, funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism, and visit Hampshire County. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette this morning, Dateline Belchertown, Staff Probe School Racism, Anti-Semitic Harassment, Nazi Salutes Believed to Involve, get this, Large Numbers of Students. This by staff writer Alexander McDougall of the Gazette. Belchertown. School officials at the middle school have opened an investigation into alleged, alleged, okay, I guess uh, interests of uh, fair reporting, alleged anti-Semitic incidents at the school, including the use of Nazi salute by a large number of students. Really quite astounding. Complaints were made to the district, and here's a quote. The Belchertown School District condemns the use of racist and derogatory language and symbolism, which is a blatant violation of school policy and, more importantly, our community core values, according to the superintendent. No one should have to come to work at school and experience discrimination and bigotry in any form. Well, that's undeniable and not subject to debate. But here it is in Belchertown, school being inundated with Nazi salutes, and anti-Semitic incidents, how is that happening uh, in 2023? This is just, just extraordinary. Listen to this. Quote, this is from the Daily Hampshire Gazette story. The parent who made a complaint was not named at the me- meeting, detailed how her child told her that up to 50, 50, 50 students at the school had been performing the Nazi salute and intimidating Jewish students with references to gas chambers and the Holocaust. Are you kidding me? I guess not. This is in Belchertown in 2023. Well, that is, I'll I'll tell you, Bill, as you know, I was raised in Atlanta. I was suspended 13 times for fighting. Usually it was because I was called uh, an anti-Semitic term. Um, those are, that's my experience, and I so thought we were getting beyond that. But uh, here's what's really chilling, and you could go to the Anti-Defamation League's webpage and look at this. There's a 29% increase in 2022 nationally on anti-Semitic incidents. It breaks down what types of incidents. The largest percentage increase, however, is in uh, K through 12, and that is a 107% increase nationwide, K through 12, a 49% increase in actual incidents, that is, assaults. At college campuses, 41% increase. It's our children who are moving backwards, and that is really scary. Well, the children probably didn't learn it all on their own. Listen to this piece uh, from the Today's Daily Hampshire Gazette story. The incidents at Belchertown come amid reports, as you point out, Buzz, of increasing anti-Semitism across Massachusetts as well as the country. Across Massachusetts, according to a report by the Anti-Defamation League, Massachusetts ranked fifth 
among all states in the number of anti-Semitic incidents last year, with the total increasing from previous years. Here's from the, again from the story from the Gazette. This is the letter that complained about this. Quote, these are not isolated events. They've been occurring for months, the letter reads. These individuals are performing hate acts and seek the spotlight while doing it. According to the parents' letter, the school's investigation has so far uncovered video footage, Instagram posts, and group Google Docs made by the offending students that verify the claims. I know. It, it's really incredible. And, and by the way, one of the reasons why Massachusetts ranks fifth, according to the executive director of the ADL, Dan and I have uh, discussed this on the air with him, is because many states don't report the incidents. School districts don't report the incidents. So they happen in even greater numbers than these chilling numbers that we're looking at right now. It is really alarming. We are looking at implementing an educational response to our eighth grade students, said the Belchertown Schools. Dan Torres? I'd like to ask a question here. Um, if this is happening for months and they're using videos to get Instagram and social media, how is it that the adults don't know about this in the classroom? And here I'm talking about teachers, staff, people inside the building. I mean, I know it's a big thing, but it's been happening for months, and it's multiple students. This isn't one or two incidences. This is much bigger and chilling. But the hard part about, I think, all of this that hasn't been mentioned is that a lot of this also gets into people's cell phones and social media and how we regulate that, I don't know, but I, I can imagine this is penetrating through a lot of videos on YouTube that they watch, and it really does begin to shape their views, these young students who can be very impressionable. You know, there's usually how this works, at least from my understanding from psychology, is there's a small group of hardcore dedicated people who begin to filter out, and they begin to create sort of this in-group, out-group dynamic. And, uh, you know, uh, that'll be tough. It'll be tough to, yeah. It's tough to understand that in 2023, but it's real. Your question, Dan, yes. and your point raises for me the issue, is this or how much of this is actually isolated in Belchertown? Yeah, it's not. Social media isolated is powerful. Too, you mean isolated, isolated to, to Belchertown? To Belchertown, right. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's very, very annoying. And what do we do about it? As you say, Bill, the kids are not inventing this, they're learning this. And so I don't, I'm not quite sure what we do at this point. What haven't we done already? And let's not forget how many people died because of what the Nazis did. Not just Jewish people. Non-Jewish people were an equal amount killed by the Nazi Germany. Six million people who were just conservatives, liberals, gays, people who had um, disabilities. They were massacred as well in those camps. And half a million Americans also died on those shores in Europe as well. And not so let's not forget even that. more in China. In China, or, or also the Russian military as well. I mean, this Why is... Why don't we talk about Ukraine? But, yeah, it, but the bottom line is that um, something somehow has triggered hate. And, I, uh, you know, I keep pointing to the previous administration, but the rise in hate has been going on for a very long time. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The East Hampton School Committee voted to offer the job of superintendent to a different candidate, Dr. Erica Vikinsky-Stark, at Monday night's meeting, having rescinded an offer made to Dr. Vito Perone. 
Originally, it was thought Perone's use of the word ladies when addressing school committee members in an email was the reason the offer was rescinded. But other concerns were brought up last night, including racial bias. Former school committee member Kira Henninger. Dr. Perone was principal of East Hampton High School from 2009 to 2015. I have significant concerns that Dr. Perone was the leader of East Hampton High School during the years in which the AG's office found problems with bias and intolerance. The board voted 5-2 to two not to re-engage in negotiations with Dr. Perone. After three hours, committee members called Faginski Stark to offer her the job, which she accepted pending negotiations. Northampton is adding 229 acres to the Sawmills Hill Greenway. The purchase was made possible by a state local acquisitions for Natural Diversity Grant and Local Community Preservation Act funding. The area will be owned and managed by the Northampton Conservation Commission, with a conservation restriction held by Castro Land Trust. UMass Amherst is partnering with a mental health organization to improve care access to students across the campus. Mantra Health is a digital mental health clinic for young adults that provide evidence-based psychiatric services. Mixture of sun and clouds today. It'll be breezy. In fact, some wind gusts up to 30 miles per hour. That will increase our already high brush fire danger. Be very careful with any outdoor flame. A high of 70 to 74 today. Variable clouds breezy tonight. Overnight low of 44 to 50. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 68 to 72. 80s possible Thursday, Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, emitió el lunes un comunicado sobre las actualizaciones de su oficina y diferentes proyectos de la ciudad. Una de estas actualizaciones se enfocó a la consulta que se haría por medio de una pregunta en la boleta electoral, la cual permitiría que los votantes decidan si se reduce el impuesto del CPA, que es la Ley de Preservación Comunitaria, del 1.5 al 1%, tal y como recomienda el Comité de Finanzas. Creo firmemente que existe un apoyo unánime entre todos los concejales, incluido yo mismo, para permitir que los votantes decidan si se reduce el impuesto del CPA. En la última reunión del Consejo de la Ciudad, el asunto terminó con una votación dividida. Por lo que observé, existe un desacuerdo sobre en qué elección presentar la pregunta a los votantes, dijo García. Distintos argumentos de los concejales sugieren que ciertas elecciones tienen mejor participación electoral que otras. Algunos concejales opinan que las elecciones locales de noviembre, en las que solo se votará por los concejales, serán menos concurridas que las estatales. El alcalde García García informó que dado que viene una elección presidencial en 2024, ha vetado la medida y envió una carta al Consejo de la Ciudad invitándoles a enviar esto de nuevo a la comisión para su posterior debate y de acuerdo en colocar la pregunta en la boleta para las elecciones del Estado y las elecciones presidenciales de 2024. En informaciones relacionadas, la oficina del alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, compartió el lunes actualizaciones relacionadas con las infraestructuras públicas que estarán ocurriendo en las próximas semanas y meses del año en curso. Entre estos proyectos se mencionó el proyecto de reemplazo de aceras, el cual está en marcha. La pavimentación de 2023 de las calles está en marcha. El fresado está programado para esta semana para ser seguido por la pavimentación tan pronto como la próxima semana. Yo soy Johan Reshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. 
knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and... And this is Talkin' Baseball on Talk the Talk. We are here with Duke Goldman, a leading light of Sabre, the Society of American Baseball Research, baseball historian, author, and editor of many books and articles on baseball. So, Duke, here's what we want to know. The Boston Red Sox surging towards first. No, they're not. Tell, talk, us, talk to us about baseball and, in particular, the Boston Red Sox. How do things look, Duke? Well, the Boston Red Sox are 5-5. Five and five. They are at a 500 record. And I suspect when the year ends, they're going to be somewhere pretty close to that. That's, that's about their level. You know, water seeks its level, as they say. So that's kind of where they're at. Now, they've had the first, I think, three games. They scored nine or more runs. So, you know, there is some offense. And Adam Duvall, who they acquired in the offseason, has just been phenomenal. Unfortunately, he went down with a wrist injury, and he, now he's out for the next six weeks. But I'm going to tell you this. He was actually, in a way, a bit fortunate because, you know what, Adam Duvall is – uh, the statistic OPS plus, which which tells you how good uh, who, a player uh, who a what on base plus slugging as adjusted to the league norm, tells you that Adam Duvall's career is a 100 OPS plus. In other words, he is an exactly average offensive player. Right now, his OPS plus is somewhere north of 300. He was going to revert to the mean. He could not maintain this unconscionable pace. So. He got injured at the right time. Now they're going to platoon, I, I read, Rymel Tapia, who had a decent year with Toronto last year, and Rob Refsnyder, who in brief appearances with the uh, Red Sox played pretty well, although he's a career utility man, former Yankee, which not everyone. I really liked him on the Yankees. Well, he's, he, he, he's an exciting player. He really he really works his enormous energy that comes from Refsnyder. I, mean, I think he's a good player. He is. Um, but... He's no, he's no Duval. No, he's no, <laughs> no Duval, and he's no Mookie Betts. By, yeah, he's but no. How, but he, how's Ralphie he, doing? He, he, Ralphie? Yeah. Devers. Oh, Ra Raphael Devers. He's doing what you'd expect him to do. He's good. He's good, but he's, he's not going to deliver this team into the playoffs, you know? That's what I think. So, uh, And now they're playing the Tampa Bay Rays. They just lost to the Rays 1-0 yesterday. They have two more games to go against the Rays, and the Rays are 10-0. and and so far, they have outscored the opposition by 76 to 18 runs. This is a run of dominance that has not been done since the year 1884, when the St. Louis Maroons of the Union Association, a one-year major league, dominated the league. And my friend and colleague, Bill Ryzek, Sabre member, who was on uh, our Fair Play segment, just a couple of months ago, has just put out a book published by McFarland and Company called Baseball's Wildest Season, Three Leagues, 34 Teams, and the Chaos of 1884. And in that book, Bill says, um, St. Louis started with a 20-game winning streak during which the Maroons outscored their opponents by a 234 to 67 margin, which is, by the way, roughly the ratio of Tampa Bay's runs scored to runs given up. Sounds like a must-read, but he, here's Duke Goldman. This is where I'm confused. I have been watching early baseball for a very long time, and usually the month of April, nobody can hit. It's really the pitchers have, you know, it's cold, and there's a lot of other reasons. What's going on? 
Everybody's adjusting to the new rules, let's face it. And pitchers, there are unintended consequences. For instance, my team, the Mets, who are now six and five, they are finding out that older pitchers are not doing well with the new pitching rules because it means they have to pitch quickly all the time and it's affecting their stamina. They're not, they're not doing well. And so some of these pitchers are still adjusting. I mean, to they the, physically can't recover between right, pitches. Right, right. They used to be able to, if they, you know, if they had a long count, if, you know, if they, if they had to, you know, run to first base, you know, to field the ball and, and be there, they had some time. Now they have very limited time and the pitchers are off. Okay. Also, now we have the, you know, the shift rule is taking away from them their ability to position such that, you know, a left-hand hitter is getting hits back through um, between first and second, whereas they weren't, you know, for years now. So the pitchers are a little bit rocked back on their heels. Old go, uh, uh, Garrett Cole in the Yankees is not exactly a spring chicken. He seems to have had a great start. Well, yeah, he's 31, 32 years old. I mean, the Mets, for instance, three top starters are 36, 39, and 40. You know, the, the, yeah, the decline, you know, increases as you get older. Okay. So go back, go, back, go back to Tampa Bay for just a minute because let me see. We talked to this fellow. What was his name? Goldman. Goldman. Duke Goldman before the season started and asked for his, how do we call these things? Uh, predictions, uh, anticipated future, that sort of thing. And somehow... Tampa Bay Rays, as being the leading light of baseball, was not on the top of your agenda, or anyone's for that matter. That said, the uh, Red Sox announcers yesterday were sort of taking uh, credit for foreseeing this by saying, well, Tampa Bay had injuries last year. Everyone knew they were great. They're really terrific, and so on and so forth. But And they did have some injuries last year. That's true. But everyone has injuries every year. So what's... What's going on here that was so unanticipated, and what is it about this team? It's only 10 games, we should note. There are 152 more to go. Well, this team knows how to operate under constraints because they've always have been under constraints. They build a team based on pitching and defense. They are a young team, but not a very young team. Their average player age is just about high 26s, low 27s. They are right at their peak. They have players like Wander Franco and uh, uh, Rosarena, Randy Rosarena, I think, who, who, who are really you know, just coming into their own. And they haven't gone out and bought an expensive, overpaid free agent, you know, somebody like a Giancarlo Stanton for that as an example. So they haven't wasted money on uh, their limited resources on poor players. And of course, the Red Sox announcers are just seers. They know everything. Dave O'Brien knows more than anyone. (laughs) So they called it. But I think they are the exception that proves the rule. Um, The rule is most, you know, low, uh, um, uh, low finance clubs, low, low payroll clubs really can't compete against the big guys, but Tampa Bay can. Okay, so we should note that the Red Sox uh, appropriated um, Chaim Bloom from Tampa Bay. He was the person who put together for years Tampa Bay's run with the lowest or second lowest payroll in baseball, competing and beating the Yankees, going to the playoffs, having a really an amazing run. Um, and you say they somehow prove the rule by being the exception. They do something remarkable. They win. They win a lot with a payroll that is less, the team payroll that is 
less than John Carlos Stanton's uh, yearly salary. Not close, not quite, but but yes. I mean, John Carlo would have about half of Tampa Bay's yearly salary at this point for one player. They're paying double that for twenty six players. Um, you know, Tampa uh, Tampa Bay has come up with a, a model that works. That doesn't mean it always will, but it has for a number of years. And Chaim Bloom, I don't know. If, I don't think he knows how to operate in a different model. That's the model he grew up with. The Red Sox have too much money for him, and he doesn't know how to use it properly, is what I think. Okay, back to the Red Sox for a moment. You keep saying, uh, you're consistent on this, that the Red Sox are a 500 team. They also have a high payroll. Yes. What's with the Red Sox and their high payroll? They, you know, they went out and paid, you know, uh, Matsutaka Yoshida close to $100 million. He's, he's done okay so far, but he's not a $100 million man. They went out and paid Kenley Jansen a good sum to be their closer. He's, you know, he's late in his career. They're trying to compete. The Red Sox, we know, Red Sox Nation does not tolerate a team that does not compete. So they're overpaying for talent. And that, you know, and they had to pay uh, Raphael Devers because they let Bogarts go, and you know if they let go of Devers, the fans would have just struck. You know it would have been a disaster. So they're, they they've got a big payroll, and they're also paying Chris Sale off for a contract they gave him years ago that for the most part he hasn't performed for because he's been injured. But Sale has performed this year, which is so an far. He's also has a history of not lasting for That's very right. long, and, and right. he ends up hurting on the uh, on the injured. List, the well, on his first start, he in three innings, he gave up five runs. But do you anticipate that we're going to be able to keep... I'm still focused on the offense that we're seeing generated as a result, I think, of these rules, uh, the changes in the rules. Do you think we're going to continue to see these kinds of offensive numbers as the season, especially when it gets warmer, and hitters usually get better or more effective? Uh, in a word, no. I don't think so. I, I think 10 games is, 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 is a small sample size. And I think, it, you know, also climate change has meant it's warmer than it often is in, in Aprils. And, you know, so that's probably helped a little bit. Uh, I think the pitchers will adjust a bit. And I think, I mean, you know, maybe the offense will be 5%, 10% stronger than it was last year because of some of these rule changes. Certainly the running game has been, you know, resurrected because the bases are bigger and, and because of the limit of pickoff throws. Um, so, and the shift, and the defensive shift. And the shift, shift yes. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think offense is going to get a slight bump up, but I, not as much as it's been so far. I'd like to share with you, Duke Goldman, an email that I sent to a guy named Duke Goldman just in the last day or two. And I said, well, actually, this may have been this morning. I said, based on what my conversations with one Duke Goldman, I know not to make too much out of a small sample size. And if you take the sample size of the first 10 games and you project it forward, it means that the Tampa Bay Rays would go 162-0 and zero for the year, <laughs> just projecting forward on what's happened so far. Are we making too much of all this? In a word, yes. <laughs> the 1966 Indians started out 10 and 0 and they ended up 81 and 81. And the most recent team to win their first nine, the 2003 Royals, ended up in third place at 83 and 79. Um, on the other hand, the 1955 Dodgers started out 10 and 0. And Bill, what did the 1955 Dodgers do? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we got to take a break now. <laughs> okay. They won the World Series. Yes, who did they beat? Beating the Yankees. Yes, yes, yes. And, and decisively. Well, seven games, seven. but 
they but they, they won. They won. Yeah. Let's take a break from party pooper Duke Goldman. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back. More talking baseball after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Hear Howie at Broadside Books. Maybe you've read Howie's poems and reviews in Great River Review, Nimrod, Cutthroat, Off the Coast, or Nine Mile. Howie gets around. He jokes that he's an adjunct emeritus. He's taught creative writing at so many different colleges, a five-time Pushcart Prize nominee, lives in Florence, and volunteers at the Center for New Americans. At Broadside, Howie will read from his newly published volume of poetry, Stay. So go. Hear Howie Feierstein read from Stay this Wednesday at 7 at Broadside Books. You take a classic like Caesar salad and start to mess with it, that could get you into trouble. Things could go wrong. The Caesar salad at Paul and Elizabeth's is a radical departure from the classic Caesar. And fortunately, in this case, things have gone rather right. Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant, a Caesar salad unlike any other, with romaine or kale or both, with balsamic onion, roasted red peppers, capers, smoked salmon, and the crowning touch, toasty hot polenta croutons. One thing I like about working at ServiceNet is that in addition to being a manager, I can still be a clinician. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. For people working private practice who want to also still have a commitment to community mental health, working at ServiceNet gives them the opportunity to do both at the same time. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. For 50 years, the Center for Women and Community has provided trauma-informed leadership and advocacy services, including 24-hour free and confidential support for survivors and their loved ones throughout Hampshire County. April is National Sexual Assault Awareness Month. CWC is here for you. If you've been impacted by violence, call the Sexual Assault Support and Advocacy Hotline for information, support, and resources. Learn about volunteer and professional staff opportunities at umass.edu CWC. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is Talking Baseball with Duke Goldman. Duke you just mentioned one of baseball's most phenomenal players just before we came back. Share that with our audience, if you would, please. So Shohei Otani has done something that probably nobody else will do. Shohei Otani had a rules violation in the same game as a hitter and as a pitcher. In other words, he took too much time to pitch, and then he took too much time as a batter and didn't get into the batter's box until uh, he wasn't in when eight seconds, they're, they're supposed to be in when there's still eight seconds for the guy to pitch. So he lost on both ends, which speaks to how phenomenal he is, how, how that he is a unicorn, as I think I mentioned two weeks ago, and he's already, again, having another great season, both as a pitcher and a hitter, but also that these, these rule changes are changing the game and transforming them. Okay, so tell me this about Otani, if you would, please. He pitches for a terrible team. Correct. He hits for a terrible team. Correct. His contract is going to expire at the Correct. end of this year. Uh, so, oh, you're the Yankees coveting another player. He won't go to the Yankees. I don't think so. I mean, who knows? You never know, but—and uh, he may stay. I mean, if—, if He may stay in, in, in the Bay Area? 
Wait. Well, not in the Bay Area, in the Los Angeles, in the La La area. In the, in the La La area, I'm yeah. sorry, I got that he wrong. He may stay there uh, bec- if the team finally, I mean, he's got a great teammate, Mike Trout. The two of them are just phenomenal. And if the Angels compete, you know, and Arte Moreno, their owner, who was going to sell them, changed his mind, and I think he'll go all out to keep Otani. And then we'll see what happens. I also read that he wants to stay on the West Coast because it's closer to Japan. Which makes sense, right? So I, I, I suspect he, he may not be rushing to leave unless the team completely what if, fails. What if the Dodgers make a move for him? That's also a possibility, I think. And what about the Padres, right? Oh, right. Oh, uh, yeah. Love the Padres, yes. <laughs> Although the Padres lost 5 to nothing to the Mets yesterday. Hey, so. Duke, I can mute your mic. Never forget that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Just know that for a fact. Yes, this will level of maturity is this the my, time we remind my, you my we're talking is, baseball my name is not on the show but i control the board just so you know okay i'll remember that you okay. do remember that <laughs> okay kids break it up with listen i want to i want to go back to the rules for a minute mm-hmm. because you've mentioned that they have made a big difference the bases are bigger the pitchers can only throw over to first base to hold the runner on uh twice uh you've mentioned the uh, the game clock, the uh, number of seconds that batters have to get in, pitchers have to pitch. Uh, these rules are actually making a big difference, I can tell, in terms of the length of the game. Absolutely. Uh, which is terrific, I yes, think. I agree. And what other changes can we see because of the rule changes? Well, you know, the thing that I noticed the most is because of the shift, when somebody hits a line shot up the middle, which for the last eight years, my head is on a swivel. Oh, but what the fielder's there. What are they doing there? Now it's a hit. And you know what? I think it should be a hit. That's a clean single. I love that. So now, of course, they're learning how to come up with sort of shift light. It does matter more for left-handers than it does for right It does. It does. But um, And I'm a lefty, so I want to see the lefties gain advantages. But, um, you know, I, I think it's a better game as far as that's concerned. I, I think it's better that there's more running, right? And some people are all upset that, you know, Ricky Henderson's record is going to be threatened and he didn't run under these circumstances with bigger bases. Oh, boo-hoo, Ricky. Nobody's going to steal 130 bases again, no matter what they do to the rules. They can make the base three times the size and they're still not going to steal 130 bases. Ricky has the record and he's always going to have the record. But somebody might steal 70 bases and that'll be kind of nice. And the inability to throw over as a practical matter. I mean, explain that rule. The rule is that they can only throw over or step off twice. And after that, if they throw over a third time and they don't throw the, bat, the runner out, either pick them off or throw them out at second base, the runner gets to go to second base, which some people argue that, in a sense, they have a third throw because, you know, at that point, you know, if, if you fail or if you succeed, you know, it, it doesn't change the outcome. But it's still a limit. And I did hear Commissioner Rob Manford say they are going to watch what's going on this year because the concern is, you know, when it becomes the pennant race and you have games that are deciding divisions and even the postseason and it's the eighth inning that, you know, maybe you want to suspend or tweak these rules a little bit because that's part of the drama of baseball, that you have all the tools in your arsenal to compete, that you throw over sometimes three, four, five times when, you know, a great runner is trying to get the winning run over to second base. Yeah, and it would be, I think, tragic if, for example, the World Series were decided by someone spending five extra seconds or two extra seconds to get into the batter's box. Yikes. Yeah, so, you know, we'll have to see. Um, I hope that baseball will be wise um, based on their prior evidence. I'm doubtful, but you never know. (laughs) 
Okay, Duke, in the last half minute we have, I want to give you a chance to have a final word about your favorite, oh, my favorite team, the New York Yankees, and what they will do this year. The Yankees will lay an egg. Well, no, <laughs> I'd like to believe that. The Yankees are still going to be in the playoffs. I mean, let's face it. I don't think they're one of the best teams, and I don't see them winning the World Series. Do you see them winning the American League? Uh, at this point, I don't see them winning the American League East. I see them going in as a wild card team. Bill, there's a box of Kleenex next to you. <laughs> you can <laughs> Duke, a good season so far? Yes, I've enjoyed it. And, you know, I feel like baseball is revitalized. And your Mets? My Mets, you know, they have issues. You know? <laughs> the Mets have issues. But they always have issues. <laughs> they, they used to have weaknesses, but this is Northampton, so the Mets have issues. You know what? I think they're going to overcome them. I do think they'll make the playoffs. World Series, you know, I have to admit, you know, last time I predicted they'd win, and then, you know, uh, uh, injury after injury happened, and I started to think, I don't know. Watch those Braves. Yep. Okay, those words of wisdom, words to live by. Thank you, Duke Goldman. Thanks so very much. My pleasure. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. The International Monetary Fund is downgrading its outlook for the global economy amid inflation and worries about banks. CBS's Vicki Barker. Not technically in recession, but the IMF says persistent inflation, persistently rising interest rates, and nervousness over the recent U.S. bank collapses are all putting the brakes on global growth. This year's slowdown is concentrated in advanced economies, where growth is expected to fall to 1.3% this year before increasing modestly next year. The IMF's Pierre-Olivia Gorincha. The risk of recession has risen sharply, but the IMF puts the risk of a global banking crisis at a modest 15%. Vicki Barker, CBS News. A court date has been set for a Wall Street Journal reporter detained in Russia. CBS's Cami McCormick with more. The Biden administration has now formally determined that Evan Gershkovich was wrongfully detained. That elevates his case for the administration. He was detained for what Russia calls spying, the first correspondent since the Cold War to be detained on that charge. A Moscow court will consider his appeal on April 18th. A plea for gun control from the mayor of Louisville, Craig Greenberg, a day after five people were killed and at least nine injured in a mass shooting at a bank there. He tells CBS 
this morning. We need help from Congress to pass legislation that can give us more tools and ability to try to prevent acts like yesterday from never happening again in Louisville, in Nashville, or any city in America. One of two Democrats expelled from the Tennessee State House by the Republican majority over a demonstration against gun violence may get a seat back tomorrow. CBS's Mark Strassman spoke with Justin Pearson. Why is it important for them to appoint you, not for you, but as a message? It is important that we send a clear message that the people in District 86 representation matters and that this illegitimate disenfranchisement of their vote and of their choice is wrong. President Biden is on the way to Northern Ireland. CBS's Stephen Portnoy. The first Irish Catholic president since John F. Kennedy. Joe Biden will spend much of his time on this island visiting the counties where his ancestors were born. But first, a speech here in Belfast marking the 25th anniversary of the peace deal that ended decades of violence between Catholics and Protestants. A graphic novel based on the diary of Anne Frank has been removed from a Florida high school. The leader of a conservative advocacy group challenged it, saying it minimized the Holocaust. The Jewish teen's diary was published in 1947, several years after she died in a concentration camp. It has become a classic and has been read by millions. This is CBS News. Hire with minimal effort and maximum success with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair, Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The East Hampton School Committee voted to offer the job of superintendent to a different candidate, Dr. Erica Vikinski-Stark, at Monday night's meeting, having rescinded an offer made to Dr. Vito Perone. Originally, it was thought Perone's use of the word ladies when addressing school committee members in an email was the reason the offer was rescinded. But other concerns were brought up last night, including racial bias. Former school committee member Kira Henninger. Dr. Perone was principal of East Hampton High School from 2009 to 2015. I have significant concerns that Dr. Perone was the leader of East Hampton High School during the years in which the AG's office found problems with bias and intolerance. The board voted 5-2 to two not to re-engage in negotiations with Dr. Perone. After three hours, committee members called Faginski-Stark to offer her the job, which she accepted pending negotiations. Northampton is adding 229 acres to the Sawmills Hill Greenway. The purchase was made possible by a state local acquisitions for Natural Diversity Grant and Local Community Preservation Act funding. The area will be owned and managed by the Northampton Conservation Commission, with a conservation restriction held by Castrol Land Trust. UMass Amherst is partnering with a mental health organization to improve care access to students across the campus. Mantra Health is a digital mental health clinic 
for young adults that provide evidence-based psychiatric services. Mixture of sun and clouds today. It'll be breezy. In fact, some wind gusts up to 30 miles per hour. That will increase our already high brush fire danger. Be very careful with any outdoor flame. A high of 70 to 74 today. Variable clouds breezy tonight. Overnight low of 44 to 50. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 68 to 72. 80s possible Thursday, Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to our show. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. You know, um, it was about uh, maybe almost two years ago when I uh, first was on the air with our next guest. What was happening there was a proposal in Texas called uh, S8. And at that time, uh, our guest was talking about the danger. It's now called the Heartbeat Act um, that uh, says uh, if any uh, a fetus is uh, six weeks or uh, around there, you will hear the heartbeat, and it, it makes an abortion uh, unconstitutional under the Texas Constitution. Our guest, Carrie Baker, told me at that time to watch out because the abortion drug... If Bristone was uh, the next attack the conservatives were going to come after, and here we are, Professor Attorney Carrie Baker. She is a co, she hosts our Feminist Futures monthly segment, but she's here specially today to talk about a dreadful opinion out of Texas. All yours, Carrie. Yeah. So on Friday night, a district court judge in Amarillo, Texas, handed down a decision that purports to basically remove the drug mifepristone from the market. Mifepristone is an FDA-approved drug that has been on the market for over 23 years. It um, Over 5 million Americans have taken it safely. And he is an anti-abortion judge that wants to stop abortion. And so he has said that the FDA improperly approved it 23 years ago and said as of, you know, seven, he gave the um, party seven days to appeal, but as of Saturday, potentially the drug could be taken off the market, which is really appalling. What about the conflicting decision from Washington, which said exactly the opposite? Yeah, so another court, a district court in the Eastern District of Washington, also a federal court, ruled, directed the FDA to leave mifepristone on the market. And these two decisions are obviously going in different directions. And yesterday, the Department of Justice um, filed a motion before the Washington court for clarification. They they said in the motion that there was substantial tension between the two decisions, and so they wanted clarification. The, you know, the issue is that the Texas case doesn't direct the FDA to do anything. It just stays the FDA approval of mifepristone under the Administrative Procedures Act. So it doesn't actually require the FDA to do anything, whereas, you know, the the Washington decision prohibited the FDA from removing it from the market. But the the concern is, yes, these two decisions are in tension because the Washington court said it was very safe and should stay on the market, and the Texas court said it's very unsafe and should be removed. But because of the way the Texas judge ruled, he he didn't direct the FDA to do anything. So the FDA can't say, my hands are tied. He just said that approval is going to be stayed as of Saturday. 
So the approval being stayed means that the approval made 23 years ago yes. is no longer approval. Exactly. And you mentioned the Administrative Procedures Act. What the judge, as I understand it, in Texas is saying, uh, uh, Kazmarek, what the judge is saying is that the FDA did not follow its own rules 23 years ago, and therefore the approval did not comply with the procedures that are necessary in order to approve the drug. It's been wrong for 23 years, and he is now going to stop the approval process. Yes, and it's it's really a ridiculous decision, quite frankly, because first of all, there's a statute of limitations. If you think an approval was improper, you have six years under the statute of limitations to bring it. It's been 23 years. The second is you have to exhaust your remedies before the FDA. They didn't do that. Would you explain what exhaustion of remedies is? So it means you have to bring your objections to the FDA and and give the FDA a chance to hear those objections. And they didn't do that. The judge is citing studies that the FDA has never never reviewed studies that actually are kind of bogus, like looking at anonymous blog posts of people saying that mifepristone was harmful to them. Um, but they, you know, they never brought that before the FDA. The other thing is standing. The people that brought this lawsuit aren't people that provide abortions or have needed abortions or, you know, in any way are related. So normally to bring a suit, you have to have standing. It has to somehow affect you. And the judge actually spent half of a 67-page opinion on standing because that issue is so tricky here. And, you know, all the experts are saying this, these plaintiffs have no standing. So this is a really weak decision. But the problem is the appeal goes to the Fifth Circuit, which is one of the most conservative circuits in the country, and then potentially to the Supreme Court. And we know what they're like. Well, let me ask you about that, because people, non-lawyers, look at this and say, wait a second, one federal court did A, and the other federal court did Z. How can that happen in the same system? But in fact, the Supreme Court has a rule that one one basis for granting certiorari, that is review, is that there are different decisions in the circuits that need to be reconciled by the Supreme Court. So that having different decisions in different circuits in federal different federal courts, that is actually not that unusual. Right, exactly. And that's why a lot of people are saying this could end up before the court sooner rather than later. I mean, they ha- the DOJ Department of Justice has filed um, an appeal to the Fifth Circuit. If the Fifth Circuit doesn't rule by Thursday at noon, they are going to take it to the Supreme Court. You know, so I know, think it could end up there. Uh, attorney and Professor Carrie Baker... What's lurking behind all of this is the FDA approval process. That is, not just for this drug, but for all sorts of drugs, the FDA has a method, an approval, or a scrutiny process. And that's being called into question by this opinion, isn't it? Absolutely. It's saying that anybody that has an objection to a drug can just bring a suit. And if they can find an extreme judge like this Texas judge, that judge could order the drug off the market. And that could be vaccines for pandemics, or it could be, you know, all kinds of medications. Um, And over 400 leaders of pharmaceutical country uh, companies in the country have written a letter to the FDA and expressing that they are, um, they're objecting to this decision and said that it could be extremely destabilizing to the medication market in the United States. It also, you know, pharmaceutical companies invest a lot of money in getting a drug approved and they rely on the fact that once it's approved, it can stay on the market and be sold so that they can 
get back their R&D, their research and development investment. And they're very worried that they're not going to want to invest in drugs that could potentially be yanked off the market if some crazy judge decides he doesn't like it. There are 400 yeah. judges in the federal district court um, that could yank it off. I, I can't help but ask both of you, uh, as attorneys, it, uh, what do you think is going to happen with the Fifth Circuit, a very conservative circuit that's going to be asked to review this by the Justice Department? What do you think? What should we expect? Well, I would like to think that they would follow the, the clear law and facts. But this is, again, a very extreme circuit. This is a circuit that when SB8 passed, the bill you mentioned before, banning abortion at six weeks before Dobbs, before Roe was overturned, they sustained that ruling. And it was it was a really legally problematic case. So I worry that they're actually, I think they just won't respond in time. And so it will end up before the Supreme Court. And there's a lot of speculation about what the Supreme Court might do. Um, Some people think that, you know, potentially some of the conservative justices like Roberts and Kavanaugh might not be willing to go this far. But Dobbs makes me think, oh, yeah, they will. So Hmm. I don't know. Bill, I wanted to ask both of you, AOC and another Republican colleague of hers in the House is just recommending that they, that the, the, that the Biden administration and the FDA ignore this judicial ruling and just thumb their nose at this judge. What are your thoughts about that? Well, so this judge was handpicked by the anti-abortion movement. He is this a, is Matthew Kazmarek. Kazmarek, yeah. He's, he's very extreme anti-abortion advocate. And you can see that in his decision because he uses very non-medical, non-legal language. It really reads like an anti-abortion screed. He was um, an attorney with an anti-abortion organization before he got put on the court by Trump just recently. He has spent his whole life advocating against abortion. So um, a lot of people say he was not legitimate he's not a legitimate judge and that this decision is not legitimate and therefore the government should ignore it. And that was Ron Weldon is the ju- is the uh, member of the Senate that originally made a floor speech on this, which was, I wrote an article on this. Um, you know, other people are saying that the, the White House press secretary yesterday said, you know, we can't, we've got to respect, they're not respecting the law. We need to respect the law and go through the proper channels to get this decision reversed, not just ignore it. If the time comes when the executive branch will pay no attention to the judicial branch, and the legislative branch will not pay attention to the judicial branch, we have reached a point where the foundations of this country's system of government will have been, I think, irreparably damaged. So I think you're playing with fire when you say, look, the judge shouldn't be a judge, and that's absolutely true. This judge is unqualified to be a judge. That's true. And this case is one in which he was handpicked um, through form shopping, which is not illegal, but is certainly something that is not held in high regard. And he and, ignored the law. And the plaintiffs incorporated uh, their their themselves or they created themselves as an organization in his district for the purpose of bringing this lawsuit which is not a legitimate and is is 
is a phony kind of standing, and they don't have standing, as Carrie Baker has pointed out, and the case is just not based on law. It's invented. But this Supreme Court has said, if we don't have the facts, as it did in the case involving the coach on the 50-yard line in, in Washington, we'll just make up other facts. And if we don't have the precedent, well, we'll just change the precedent. And if we don't have a theory, we'll create a new theory. That's what this Supreme Court has done. Yeah. And it has brought into serious question the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And they brought that on themselves. And here we have a direct affront uh, by the judiciary to logic and reason and law and precedent and decency and compassion and fairness and law. So whether it will stand or not, I hope not. Well, and I just want to say that the Government Accountability Office, which is like the gold standard in reviewing procedures and making sure things are done correctly, in 2012 issued an extensive report on how Mifepristone was approved. And they said that it was completely legitimate how it was approved. It wasn't rushed. They used adequate evidence. They followed all the procedures required. And, you know, this drug is safer than Tylenol. It should be over the counter. It is safer than Tylenol. Judge Kaczmarek's decision is filled with literally fiction saying that, oh, this is dangerous. It's all this anti-abortion rhetoric that's been around for years saying that this is a dangerous drug. I mean, one of their strategies is to try to make abortion sound scary and dangerous when it's really not. And at one level, I think this suit is about just trying to get that message out there to scare people, to disorient them, to create chaos. Do I have a right to do this or not? Is this drug safe or not? I mean, that is their goal, and they are succeeding in doing that. And I've read, Carrie Baker, I don't know if it's true, maybe you can help me here, that this drug, mifepristone, is uh, what, that's the way more abortion, more pregnancies are terminated than actual abortions, that this drug Than is... procedural abortions, yeah. So the latest data is from 2020, and it, 54% of abortions across the country are done with abortion pills, which mifepristone is one, and 60% of first trimester abortions are done that way, which this drug is used in the first 12 weeks. It's an early abortion drug. And, you know, the number now, we're 2023, it's probably a lot higher now. The pandemic led to significant increase in abortion pill use. And by the way, the other thing is the pandemic led to telemedicine abortion, where you could just consult online with a doctor and then have the pills mailed to you. A part of the Texas decision that no one is talking about, but is really significant, is that Judge Kaczmarek said that mailing abortion pills violates the 1873 Comstock Act, which was a federal law that prohibited sending obscene materials through the mail. He ruled that mailing abortion pills is against that federal law, and in theory, we're no longer allowed to do telemedicine abortion under this ruling. And Washington didn't rule on this point, so nobody's talking about this, but I'm actually really concerned about this because this is one way people are getting access to abortion. The anti-abortion movement has shut down so many clinics that people have to drive hours and hours. And so telemedicine abortion means that they can get medicine mailed to them directly in their homes, like people out on Cape Cod. You know, they have to drive hours to get to a clinic. Now they can use telemedicine abortion. Well, potentially, because Merrick's ruling will prohibit doctors from mailing pills in Massachusetts. And that's something to keep in mind. This Washington decision purports to apply nationwide 
not only to the approval of mifepristone, but to the mailing of mifepristone and and all abortion pills, misoprostol as well, which is another abortion pill that you can take alone. It's quite effective. It's not affected by that first part of the ruling because it hasn't been invalidated. It's an ulcer, widely available ulcer medication. You take 12 of them to abort an early pregnancy. Um, But it does affect the mailing of misoprostol potentially. And what I'd like to do is to take a break, and we're going to come back. I'd like to talk a little bit about Governor Healy yeah. and what she's doing in response. We are talking with Professor and Attorney Carrie Baker. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. We finally entered into a more balanced real estate market. Hi, I'm Craig Delapena, a part of the Trailside team at the Murphy's Realtors. I've been helping buyers and sellers in our valley and beyond for close to 20 years. I specialize in homes near rail trails, as well as antique or historic homes. Together, we'll create a plan that gets you to the next chapter and will minimize your stress along the way. Visit NorthamptonRealtor.com innovator. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Carrie Baker, who is a professor of the study of women and gender at Smith College. She is, we should note, a undergraduate, a graduate of Yale and for her undergraduate degree and has her law degree from Emory University School of Law. Buzz? Well, we were talking about um, generally this horrific opinion coming out of Texas, but I'm wondering what does it mean here in Massachusetts? Yeah, so yesterday our amazing new governor, Maura Healey, uh, was out in front of the Capitol with a whole cadre of representatives and advocates speaking about this decision and the potential impact on Massachusetts. And in that context, she announced that the state has ordered 15,000 doses of mifepristone to have on hand in case this Texas 
order goes into effect so that they will be able to make sure that people who need the medication in Massachusetts will have it for the time being while the appeals are going on in the case. We're stockpiling it, and that bears on UMass Amherst, right? Yeah, they are, they are actually the entity that has ordered these pills, but the pills will be made available to providers outside of the university. Um, this strategy is not, Massachusetts isn't alone. Um, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington ordered 30,000 doses of mifepristone last week, and other states are looking into doing this as well. And this is so that the states themselves have the medication on hand and can make sure that people get it if they need it in the meantime while the case is appealed. I mean, again, it's kind of sad that we're in the state, and it makes me think about what you just said, Bill, about, you know, state against state sort of battling against each other and, you know, Idaho passing the abortion trafficking law, not allowing people to travel out of state and threatening to prosecute doctors in other states. Um, that's another thing Maura Healy said yesterday is that um, she reiterated that Massachusetts protects abortion providers who provide legal abortion care in the state of Texas from any sort of prosecution criminal prosecution from other states. Mifepristone is the drug of choice for early early abortions. Yeah, so there's there's two medications. Tell us about the second because my question yeah. is is that a possible workaround? Yes, absolutely. So there's two medications, mifepristone and misoprostol. Mifepristone um, is what it does is it blocks um, progesterone, which is what keeps a pregnancy going. So when you take mifepristone, the pregnancy begins to shed. And then this, about 6 to 24 hours later, you take a second medication called misoprostol, which has been approved by the FDA as an ulcer drug. So it's widely available. Many of you listeners are probably on it for your ulcers. If you take misoprostol, then... This that... conversation is going to give me an ulcer. That's... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it causes contractions and expels the pregnancy. Now, you can take misoprostol alone to end an early pregnancy. It is very, very safe, very, very effective. The process is a little more difficult because it's you have more cramps and it's, you know, it's more like a manual process. <laughs> so it, you know, you have to expel the contents through contractions. And so it's not the gold standard. And people don't want to have to prescribe misoprostol alone. However, they can. And it is, again, very effective. Studies abroad, we've rarely used misoprostol alone here because we've had the combination pill, but abroad, studies have shown that it's 93 to 99% effective and, um, you know, very safe, definitely safer than Tylenol and all those other drugs. And the big elephant in the room is that overwhelmingly, according to Harry Anton of the recent CNN poll, uh, 53% of Republicans in this country, mm -hmm. and it was a large poll, are, uh, they oppose this ban. They oppose this Texas judge's yes. uh, opinion. 82% of Democrats and overall 71% of American voters yes. say that they are in favor of abortion and opposed to this ban. Absolutely. Six states have now uh, passed measures, attempted to pass measures that uh, completely ban this drug. And including Kansas, Montana, and Kentucky, they have voted against banning this drug. Voters are actually yeah. in favor of this. Well, and there are two lawsuits that are challenging those kinds of state restrictions. So when the FDA approves a drug, it approves it with certain restrictions and 
you know, allowances. And a state can't come and say, oh, by the way, I want to add a few more restrictions. There was this case exactly like this in Massachusetts when Governor Patrick signed a bill restricting opioids back in 2007. And that got, um, there was a lawsuit in federal court that challenged that restriction. And the court said that state restrictions on an FDA approved drug that go beyond what the FDA says can happen violates the preemption clause, the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which says federal law preempts state law. So there's a West Virginia and a North Carolina federal case right now challenging states that are trying to restrict this FDA approved drug. Um, And that includes things like 24-hour waiting periods, mandatory ultrasounds, you know, all different kinds of restrictions that conservative states are putting in place. So, um, you know, that is currently pending, and we'll see. But, um, you know, it doesn't make sense that states can put on extra restrictions on drugs that the FDA has ruled are safe and should be widely available. My last question, what should people do who are upset by this? Is there anything we could be doing? Yeah, I mean, there are groups that are you know, creating petitions to the FDA. There are people reaching out to their representatives. What I think people should do is let folks know how safe these pills are. Try to counteract the goal of the anti-abortion movement here, which is to try to make people think that abortion pills are dangerous and that abortion is dangerous, which it's not. Again, the uh, 5 million people have taken this pill over the last 23 years since it's been approved. And Serious um, incidences resulting from the pill is less than 1%. Um, it is, again, safer than Tylenol. We need to get the word out there. The other thing is, is that there is a robust network now to get people abortion pills outside of the medical and legal system. There's an organization called PlanCPills.org, which has a website that talks about how you can get pills um, for free from organizations like Red State Access, which is uh, for people available in red states, they will mail you pills for free. Um, There are other organizations like this that are doing this. It is underground, but it is what people are doing because you can't stop people from getting abortion. We know this from around the world. In nations that have banned abortion, Abortion rates are higher, actually, because they're usually also banning contraception, and so people are having more unintended pregnancies. You can't stop people from getting abortions. This is an, an intimate experience, a demanding experience. People are going to get abortions if they need them. So there's a Dutch um, doctor based in Austria named Rebecca Gompertz who has an organization called Aid Access, and they mail abortion pills to people in all 50 states for sliding scale fee of $110, and they will do it in advance. So I'm encouraging people to order these pills in advance um, and have them on in your medicine cabinet in case you use them. How do people access? What is the website? Do you know? Aidaccess.org or plancpills.org. Plan C also lists vetted online distributors of abortion pills. There are a lot of these new websites that are selling pills, but you know, you've got to be careful because you don't know if they're quality medications. What Plan C has done is order pills from those websites, get them tested, and then listed the websites that are providing quality product. Well, thank you. That's really important information. And, and uh, amidst all this dreadful news, I've got really good news, which is this, the second week in April, we're going to have a treat. Carrie Baker, two days in a <laughs> yeah. row. 
tomorrow is going to be Feminist Future, and who do you have on tomorrow? I have Dr. Lisa Fontes, who is a professor at University of Massachusetts, and she's going to be here talking about coercive control in intimate partner relationships. And it's a form of domestic violence that's non-physical, but extremely damaging. She's an expert. She's written one of the leading books on this topic, so I'm thrilled to have her come tomorrow. More to learn with Carrie Baker uh, at the helm. So thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to talk to another local hero right after this about stopping nuclear war. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The East Hampton School Committee voted to offer the job of superintendent to a different candidate, Dr. Erica Vikinski-Stark, at Monday night's meeting, having rescinded an offer made to Dr. Vito Perone. Originally, it was thought Perone's use of the word ladies when addressing school committee members in an email was the reason the offer was rescinded. But other concerns were brought up last night, including racial bias. Former school committee member Kira Henninger. Dr. Perone was principal of East Hampton High School from 2009 to 2015. I have significant concerns that Dr. Perone was the leader of East Hampton High School during the years in which the AG's office found problems with bias and intolerance. The board voted 5-2 to two not to re-engage in negotiations with Dr. Perone. After three hours, committee members called Faginski-Stark to offer her the job, which she accepted pending negotiations. Northampton is adding 229 acres to the Sawmills Hill Greenway. The purchase was made possible by a state local acquisitions for natural diversity grant and local community preservation act funding. The area will be owned and managed by the Northampton Conservation Commission with a conservation restriction held by Kestrel Land Trust. UMass Amherst is partnering with a mental health organization to improve care access to students across the campus. Mantra Health is a digital mental health clinic for young adults that provide evidence-based psychiatric services. Mixture of sun and clouds today. It'll be breezy. In fact, some wind gusts up to 30 miles per hour. That will increase our already high brush fire danger. Be very careful with any outdoor flame. A high of 70 to 74 today. Variable clouds breezy tonight. Overnight low of 44 to 50. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 68 to 72. 80s possible Thursday, Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman. 
weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015-1400-WHMP-Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday, Hanger Pub and Grill? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Famous for their amazing wings and beer, the Hangar Pub and Grill has multiple locations throughout Western Mass. The Hangar Wings paired with an Amherst Brewing beer is perfect before a game, after work, lunch. Check them out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to our show Dr. Ira Helfand. We have Dr. Helfand with us today because of a story in the Republican yesterday and because of an award he is receiving on Thursday. Dateline Northampton, nuclear weapons activist wins peace award. After 45 years, this is a story by Jeanette DeForge, a longtime and very experienced and very, very accomplished uh, writer for the Republican. After 45 years of fighting for the worldwide elimination of nuclear weapons, a local physician believes the solution could be no more than 10 years away. Dr. Ira Helfand, a retired doctor who most recently worked at the Family Care Medical Center in Springfield, is the recipient, will be the recipient on Thursday of the Morehouse College Gandhi King Akeda Community Builders Award for his creation and activist work with the Back from the Brink, an organization founded here, co-founded here by Dr. Helfen just a few years ago. Dr. Helfen, thank you so much for being back with us. You have a long, long history of working against the proliferation and the dangers of nuclear war. I know you see nuclear war as not some abstract possibility, but a real and existential threat to the survival of all of us. I would appreciate your telling us about Back from the Brink as part of the work that you've done for years, including your work with the Physicians for Social Responsibility, which you're the past president of. Tell us about the existential danger of nuclear war today, because to you, it's not an abstraction, but it is for most people something we just put aside and say, oh, that will never happen. You take a different view. Help us understand your perspective. Well, thanks for having me on this morning. Yeah, I do have a different view than, than uh, many people, I think, on this. Uh, we have all been acting as though the danger of nuclear war went away when the Cold War ended, as indeed it should have. Uh, nuclear weapons were built to fight the Cold War, and there's really, if there was ever any rationale for them, it totally evaporated when the Cold War ended. But unfortunately, the danger never went away. Uh, it got a little bit less when the tensions between the US and, and Russia decreased uh, after the end of the Cold War. Uh, but the weapons remained. And we spent a lot of time in the 90s and the 2000s trying to alert people to the fact that these weapons were still around, just waiting for bad things to happen again. And now bad things have happened. Uh, and it's not just Ukraine. Uh, as long as five years ago, People like William Perry, the former Secretary of Defense, were warning us that we were closer to nuclear war then than we had been even during the worst moments of the Cold War. 
because relations between the U.S. and Russia had already deteriorated significantly, and for a number of other factors as well. And of course, now with the invasion of Ukraine, it's at one level hard to ignore the fact that we are facing the danger of nuclear war. Putin makes threats about using nuclear weapons on a regular basis. But somehow or other, we are still, all of us, pretending this isn't happening. And there's a very weird disjunct between the danger that's out there and the danger that we perceive. In the 80s, we all got it. We all knew there, there could be a nuclear war at any moment. And, and that was very important because it led millions of us to take action, uh, which action was essential in stopping the Cold War arms race. But today, we have the same kind of threats. The situation is even more dangerous. And if you ask people what are the biggest problems facing the world today, almost no one lists nuclear war uh, as among their top concerns. And that's what we're trying to change with the Back from the Brink campaign. We're trying to educate people about the fact that nuclear war is a real and present threat, that this could happen at any time because of events in Ukraine, but also because of events in Taiwan, events in South Asia, and so on. I was, uh, I think, shocked to come to the realization that Vladimir Putin was, in fact, seriously considering the use of so-called tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And the reason he didn't is because the Chinese president talked him out of it. This meaning, in in essence, that the future of the world rested in the hands of one person talking another person out of this insane idea. That's really close to the brink. Did you have that reaction, or am I overstating that? No, I think, I think that's an appropriate reaction to the events. And I, I, would, I would go on to say that the danger of the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine is not passed. Putin did, has not used them yet, but we don't know what his thinking is going to be uh, if this war continues. Uh, and the possibility that he will use them, I think, remains very real. And, and it's not just Putin. I mean, he has the ability to launch nuclear war and, on his own decision. The President of the United States can launch nuclear war without having to consult anybody else here in the United States. The President of China has that power, and the leaders of the other countries which have nuclear weapons, there are nine altogether. Each one of these leaders has the ability to destroy the world. And it's a very bizarre and crazy situation that we allow a handful of people to hold this power over all the rest of us. They are holding all of us hostage. And we, we let this continue. We need to understand that the danger of nuclear war is something which is within our control. We can take this power away from them. We can make them get rid of their nuclear weapons. And we have to do that. Well, this is Buzz Eisenberg's favorite question, so let's turn to it. What can we do? I mean, there are nine nations, I think that's the right number, with nuclear weapons. They all could either intentionally or unintentionally begin a nuclear war. There is, I know, the treaty that has the 2017 International Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, but it's not, it's not in effect, and, it's not, and the United States hasn't signed it, and we have no intention of signing it, as far as I can tell, and neither do the other nuclear states. So... I don't mean to be, this is the same question I've asked you, I think, every time you've been on, Ira, so I appreciate your indulging me again. What can we do, and what does it really matter what we do? 
I, you know, I think what we can do here in the United States is to bring about a change in U.S. policy, uh, not advocating the United States disarm unilaterally, but what Back from the Brink campaign advocates is that the United States provide leadership to the rest of the world in a global effort to get rid of all nuclear weapons. You know, there is no reason why any one of these countries should want to continue to maintain a nuclear arsenal if they really understand what is at stake. None of these countries benefits from a nuclear war that destroys the world. Uh, and yet they continue to act as though they can control the situation and make sure that the weapons aren't used in, in a way that they don't want. We know that's not true. We know how many times we have come close to having a nuclear war by accident or by design. There are at least six occasions when either Moscow or Washington actually began the process of launching its nuclear arsenal only to turn back at the last minute when it discovered that it was not under attack by the other side, which is what they had thought and what had caused them to, to take this action. Those are the times we know about. There may have been other episodes as well. It's an extremely dangerous situation. Now, here in the United States, we can bring about change. We can get the United States to declare a new nuclear policy that recognizes that nuclear weapons do not make us safe, that they are, in fact, the greatest threat to our security, and that our security demands that we work to eliminate them worldwide. And the U.S. can reach out to the other countries. And with this perspective, you know, I, I, I envision a moment where, where President Biden sits down with President Xi and says, look, what we're doing is crazy. If we keep on this path where both of our countries are going to be destroyed and the whole world along with us, we can do something different. That's what happened in the 80s. You know, Gorbachev at a moment of extraordinary tension between the United States and the Soviet Union, came to the realization that the whole world was in jeopardy, that this was a crazy policy that both sides were pursuing, and he reached out to Reagan, probably not expecting to get a very favorable response, given the kind of rhetoric that Reagan had been engaging in. But he took the chance, there was, actually there was no downside to what he did, he reached out to Reagan and said, let's change, let's do something different. And to his surprise, Reagan got it, and was willing to make important changes in nuclear policy. They, the two of them, between them, ended the Cold War arms race. They did that largely in response to tremendous public demand. And here in the States, what we need to do now is to create that same demand that President Biden, at this point in time, take on the role that Gorbachev did in the 80s, reach out to, to Xi and to Putin, and say, look, this isn't working. We've got to do something different if we're going to continue to live on this planet. Dr. Uh, Ira Helfand, who is uh, uh, going to receive this award from Morehouse College, the Gandhi King Ikeda uh, Community Builders Award for the creation of and his activist work with Back from the Brink. Um, the uh, reporter who uh, wrote in the Republican reported this um, reminded us that the world has now about 13,000 nuclear warheads spread out across those nine countries that you mentioned. That we've already destroyed 50,000 of them. In your vision, is it going to be over time that we're going to be able to eradicate? Should we achieve somehow this agreement among world leaders? It's going to happen over time. How do you destroy 15,000? How do you get 15,000 warheads destroyed? Yeah, actually, dis dismantling the 15,000 warheads that remain is the easy part. As you pointed out, Buzz, we've already taken 50,000 of them apart. 
we know exactly how to do this and it's not that complicated. Uh, the problem is the political will, making that decision to do that. The countries which have nuclear weapons continue to believe that somehow or other the possession of these weapons gives them an advantage in the world. It enables them to get things that they want. And unfortunately, the Ukraine war has tended to support that view. Putin was able to invade Ukraine with some impunity because he knew that the rest of the world was intimidated by his nuclear arsenal. Uh, the United States has made similar threats in the past. We've threatened to use nuclear weapons against non-nuclear countries in order to get things that we wanted in the world. And what needs to happen is that the leadership needs to understand that whatever benefit they think they get by being able to threaten the use of nuclear weapons is not worth the risk of destroying the entire planet, which is what's going to happen sooner or later. You know, there's a notion that this is, in many people's minds, that this is a stable situation, that we've survived this far because our leaders know what they're doing, because we have military doctrines that make sense, because we have technology that works. None of those things is necessarily true. As Robert McNamara pointed out, we are here today because, and I'm quoting him, we lucked out. It was luck that prevented nuclear war. And the current policy of maintaining these nuclear arsenals is really nothing more than a hope for continued good luck. And that has to change. And it has to start here in the United States, I think, at this point, because I don't see the kind of leadership that Gorbachev provided. I don't see that coming from Russia or China today. We could be surprised. Putin or Xi could reach out to us with the right message. But I think it's much more likely that we're going to see that coming from here in the United States. And so it's important for us, the people in this country, to put pressure on our leadership to do this. Now, Congressman Jim McGovern has introduced a resolution in Congress, HRS 77, calling on the President of the United States to do just that. And Congressman Richie Neal has co-sponsored that resolution. We're hoping that the rest of the Massachusetts congressional delegation will co-sponsor it as well. And we're also hoping that Senators Markey and Senator Warren will introduce a companion resolution in the Senate. Um, they have provided significant leadership on important issues like climate change and the nuclear war prevention in the past, and we really are relying on them to provide that kind of leadership again today. And one thing that's very specific thing that people can do is to call Senator Markey's office today because he's in the process of making a decision as to what he's going to do about this and urge him strongly to support, uh, to introduce rather into the Senate a companion resolution to HRES 77. And I think it would be, you know, a very dramatic and simple thing that an individual can do today to try to lessen this danger. Um, Senator Markey is in the process of making up his mind. We need to help him do it in the right way. We are speaking uh, with Dr. Ira Helfand about this incredibly important and, and too much ignored uh, problem of uh, the specter of nuclear war and these nuclear warheads just lurking there waiting for some bonehead move by somebody. We're going to continue this conversation right after these messages. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. 
You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. For 50 years, the Center for Women and Community has provided trauma-informed leadership and advocacy services, including 24-hour free and confidential support for survivors and their loved ones throughout Hampshire County. April is National Sexual Assault Awareness Month. CWC is here for you. If you've been impacted by violence, call the Sexual Assault Support and Advocacy Hotline for information, support, and resources. Learn about volunteer and professional staff opportunities at umass.edu slash CWC. Meltdown, the annual spring music and book bash for kids and their grown-ups. Brought to you by The River and Mass General Brigham's Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Saturday, April 22nd, Meltdown is at Hawks and Reed in downtown Greenfield for a day of free family fun. 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. rain or shine. Live music and authors on the Hawks and Reed main stage with Carrie Ferguson and the Grumpy Town Club Band, the Deedle Deedle Dees, and puppets with Tom Knight, along with great local authors like Sue Fuller, Ty Allen Jackson, and Mira Bartok. Outside on Court Square, the amazing acrobatics of the Show City Circus, Birds of Prey with Tom Riccardi, adorable dogs from Heroes Boarding and Training, and enjoy great local food from Cocina Lupita, Holyoke hummus and Bart's ice cream. Meltdown brought to you with the support of Mass General Brigham's Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Saturday, April 22nd, inside and outside Hawks and Reed in downtown Greenfield. It's rain or shine and it's free. See you there. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back um, with Dr. Ira Helfand, a really local hero extraordinaire. Morehouse College is recognizing him and his heroic fight against nuclear weapons and trying to rid the scourge, rid the world of the scourge of nuclear weapons. And as a result, Morehouse College is giving him the coveted Gandhi King Ikeda Community Builders Award uh, for that activist work and for creating Back from the Brink, the organization which he founded. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Uh, Gandhi King Ikeda. Who is Ikeda? Uh, Ikeda is the president of Soko Gakkai International and has been for the last 60-plus years. He's an extraordinary individual who has really, uh, throughout this entire period, uh, been a leading voice calling for the abolition of nuclear weapons and calling for a more just and peaceful world and uh, is justly revered by people in this large uh, Buddhist community around the world. Uh, headquartered in Japan, but with a significant branch here in the United States as well. So much so that, that Morehouse College has put him in quite uh, esteemed company with Gandhi and King. Exactly. Who else has been awarded this award? Um, it's been given to a number of people, uh, including um, some of them who are fairly well-known, uh, former Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, uh, Coretta Scott King has received this award, uh, Archbishop Tutu, former South African President F.W. de Klerk, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, Nelson Mandela. Uh, they've uh, 
awarded this to a, to a number of, of well-known international figures in the past. And I'm not sure why I'm included in that group, but I'm very honored to be part of it. It's quite uh, obvious why you've been included, and that you deserve it. And, you know, I won the cha-cha contest in sixth grade. I want you to know that. Um, so Back from the Brink, can you tell us about Back from the Brink, the organization you helped found? Yeah, so this is a, an attempt to mobilize the public in this country and to educate the public about the need to change nuclear policy. Um, and we have started here in the Valley. Uh, the first city to adopt a Back from the Brink resolution was Northampton. It has been joined now by uh, Springfield, Holyoke, East Hampton, Amherst, uh, and many of the other towns in the Valley. Uh, and uh, we have enjoyed tremendous political support from Congressman McGovern, also from our state legislators, uh, Representative Sabadosa and Senator Comerford. And um, it's something that we urge people to get involved with. There's a website, preventnuclearwar.org, uh, in which people can go to, and you can sign up and become part of this campaign. And um, as I mentioned, at the moment, one of the things that we are most encouraging people to do is to contact Senators Markey and Warren uh, and urge them to introduce a companion resolution in the United States Senate. The idea is that if we can get enough people to issue a call for a change in U.S. nuclear policy, we'll create a national consensus that will lead to that happening. It requires more than the United States, though, Ira. It requires the cooperation of nations across the world, including nations that, well, we don't deny or do we don't acknowledge that they have nuclear weapons. So we have a few seconds. You tell us you have the answer. Um, I don't have the answer, and it's possible the U.S. will try to lead a movement like this and won't succeed. But we need to try, because if we don't try, we know what's going to happen. And there's no reason to assume we're going to fail. It's up to us to try to provide leadership. Thank you so much. Uh, and congratulations on the award, Dr. Ira Helfand. And everyone, that website is preventnuclearwar.org. It's back, to the br back from the brink, and please do look at it and join Thank you so much for joining us today on Talk the Talk. Remember to walk the walk. Thanks for having me. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families' bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at Hilltown Families. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413 Turners Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's a